Ezekiel 47. Let's get to Ezekiel 47 tonight. To be honest with you, I don't know how long this is going to take. It could be 30 minutes or it could be three hours. I don't know. We'll see. We will see. Okay. That won't be three hours. I promise you. <laughs> Ezekiel 47. Beginning at verse 13. We are now in the very last, last, last part of this great prophecy of Ezekiel. And uh, God has been revealing since chapter 40 this wonderful vision of the millennial kingdom and the messianic temple. There's some interesting things I want to talk about tonight as we begin that. But that was the reason why I said, I thought, well, maybe if I got into it, but uh, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to finish tonight and then whatever it takes us to get through 48. Uh, shouldn't take that long. And then when we're done with, with Ezekiel, I'm going to do a kind of a supplemental teaching on what I'm going to mention here in just a moment. Because it's, it's another look at things from a biblical perspective that uh, sometimes seems to be looked at from a totally different way because it was set that way a long time ago. But the closer we come to the closer we come to the coming of Jesus, uh, the more things begin to get revealed. So this may be one of those things, but I'll, I'll explain in just a minute. I haven't even gotten to it yet. But let's look at verses 13 and 14. It says, uh, Thus saith the Lord God, This shall be the border, whereby you shall inherit the land according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions, and you shall inherit it, one as well as another. Concerning the which I... Concerning the which I lifted up my hand to give it unto your fathers, and this land shall fall unto you for inheritance. So last week we were looking at this temple, and out of the temple comes this river. And we know that the temple is in Jerusalem. We know that uh, everything has been changed. And we talked a lot about the... Um, about the uh, topographical and geographical changes. So I mentioned last week at the onset of our study that right before Jesus sets up his kingdom on earth, that there will be a number of catastrophic uh, disasters that will happen upon the earth. We talked about the earthquakes and the volcanoes and the like, not to mention the falling of, of uh, gigantic meteors which are being watched as, as we speak. Uh, scientists looking at them and saying, you know, if this one particular meteor uh, is aimed at, at Earth, you know, it's just going to bring complete devastation whatsoever, you know. It's like the scientists know everything. God's in control of everything that's out there, by the way, <laughs> in the heavens. But as I pondered those things, a thought came to mind and a question was brought to my attention. Could there be any connection to what is described by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 to this destruction? And when would that destruction actually take place? I think you know what I refer to in 2 Peter in chapter 3. 
It's verses 8 through 14. It's actually within this passage, but I wanted to give it context. In verse 8, Peter said, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. With, with God, there's, you know, there's no real... Uh, he's not bound by any time. So it says one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, or a thousand years is one day. To him, all time is the same. But the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, that's a wonderful thing that we know about the Lord. He's not slack concerning that promise of his coming, of his putting everything into place. But he's long-suffering because he wants more and more people to come to him. He wants more and more people to be saved. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But, and here it is, the day of the Lord. Notice this. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. So verse 10 really is the key to what I want to speak about in just a moment. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought you to be in, holy con, uh, in, in all holy conversation and godliness? In other words, seeing that these things are going to happen. Now, what's going to happen on the day of the Lord? This is, what, this is the whole point. What, what's going to happen on the day of the, the Lord? The day of the Lord is one of the darkest days because it's that seven-year period of tribulation. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. Wow. The day of the Lord? Some of you, I'm trying to make sure that you got your thinking caps on here. All right? Because what we've been talking about in Ezekiel is the millennial kingdom. The thousand-year reign of Christ that starts after the seven-year period of tribulation. So he says, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? What manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct? This is about your conduct as we're looking for the day of the Lord coming. As we're looking for, that. Well, actually we're not looking for the day of the Lord, we're looking for the day of Christ. We're looking for the day when he's going to come and take us home. Before the day of the Lord. And those are very distinct words about all of these time frames. Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens shall be on, uh, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Interesting. The heavens will be on fire. Normally, we say the earth is going to be on fire. Well, did you know the heavens have elements too? Everything that God created, the heavens and the earth, everything that He created is made out of the same elements. Then he says, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. 
Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Again, back to who we are while we wait for all these things to happen. Is our life on this earth important? Is how we live our life on this earth important? Of course. And who's the one that sees us every day? Each and every one of us. It's the Lord himself. It's not what everybody else sees. It's what he sees. Got to remember that. So as to the question, when, when does this destruction of the earth take place? And remember, it's not just the earth, but the heavens and the earth. When does all this destruction take place? Now, some believe and teach, as, as even I have, that this event happens at the end of the millennial kingdom. We just say, it, well, it just happens at the end of the millennial kingdom. Jesus comes, he steps on the, on the Mount of Olives, and you know, he starts his millennial kingdom a thousand years. There are all these other things, you know, Satan's let loose and, he's, and he goes about and does a little damage with two people. But then at the end of that, you know, then, then the Lord destroys him. What happens is that we need to understand where the battle of Armageddon is. That's the key. And I think that sometimes we're missing where that is. So there are those that hold to that. I've taught it myself in the book of Revelation, taught it in in, in, in some of the other prophetic uh, books because that's, a, that's the first place that we want to go. And that's why I'm not going to do it tonight, but, but uh, again, you know, if I did, it would be another three hours, and I know you guys don't want to stay for three hours. So we've already mentioned that when Jesus' feet lands on the Mount of Olives, that all of the topography changes. All the topography changes. The geography, to a certain extent, will also change. When Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives. The only question I'd have, to pon- I'd have you ponder with me is, could this happen at the end of the tribulation period instead? Just a thought. Think about what happens. Where is the Temple Mount going to be when Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives? Think about what we read already in the book of Ezekiel that there is only one mountain and it's really high and it's not the level where the Temple Mount is today. That has to happen right after the tribulation period because that's when Jesus comes back with 10,000s of his saints. So these, these, are, see, these are some of the things that I want you just to ponder and to consider. Let me also add this. We're told that the heavens will be on fire, as I said in verse 12, and added to that, the molecular makeup of the earth itself will be melted and destroyed. The earth as we know it, in other words, as the apostles knew it. So is it possible that this will be the climax of the battle of Armageddon and not at the end of the millennial kingdom? Because the millennial kingdom, folks, (laughs) everything's already changed. So keep these questions in mind for a couple of weeks. And at the end of our study of uh, the book of Ezekiel, I, I will do a supplemental teaching on this subject which I hope we'll all find significant and I hope it's fascinating and I hope it kind of gives us another kind of view of what, what may happen. And remember, it hasn't happened yet. So we're still putting things together. And so I think we're, we're okay to do that. 
but it does challenge some very, you know, uh, static or very staid positions that some people have already had. But we'll look at it. We'll look at it because we want to be right. We don't. We just don't want to do it just for the sake of doing it. We want to be right about these things. So. We'll look closely at the last three chapters of the book of Revelation, the last three chapters of the book of Isaiah, along with other passages in the prophets and the apostles. Okay, that's the commercial for the next few weeks. So getting back to our text then, some have believed that this last section of chapter 47 actually acts as an introduction to chapter 48. And, and it's quite possible because it is kind of like an introduction to what we're going to see in chapter 48. And so it's more a part of the final chapter dealing with the borders of the inheritance of each of the tribes of Israel. Now, of course, when Christ returns to set up God's kingdom on earth, when Christ returns, the Lord will establish his new covenant with Israel. All Jewish people who truly trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will return to inherit the land God had, uh, the, that God had promised them. They're going to come back into the land fully and completely, and it's going to be the, the, the totally blessed land that God had promised him from the very, very beginning. And what Ezekiel is told is the description of God's plan of dividing the land. In verse, uh, verses 13 and 14, which we just read a little while ago, the Lord God himself gave instructions about how to divide the land. And if you remember, not long ago, we had a, we had a little chart there with the land, and, and now you have a chart in your hand, I think, if you got it when you came in. It's very similar to the chart we had up here, but up here we had technicolor, you know, so everything was, was divided by color. And uh, anyway, uh, it was easier kind of to see. But uh, I, I wanted you to have this just as the designations and, and where the pr pretty much geographically uh, these uh, uh, tribes were assigned. Uh, personally, I think it's a lot more land than what we see, especially going west to east. But... Uh, because remember that the land actually that was promised to Abraham, and we'll talk about Abraham in a minute, but it was actually land that extended all the way to the, the Euphrates, you know. Now, much of the, the, the land to the east of, of the land of Israel, as we see it on the chart, all of that land is, is land that, you know, is desert for the most part. Yet the scripture says that in the, in the, uh, in the millennium, that's all going to be blossom like a rose. It's going to blossom I mean, it's going to be beautiful. And of course, the topography, again, is going to be completely uh, different. So uh, we'll see if, you know, the, the, the chart is just letting you know north to south where these particular um, uh, tribes will be, but we'll get to that in a moment. We're first told that the tribe of Joseph, notice in verses 13 and 14, the tribe of Joseph will receive two portions. One portion for each of Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and this, of course, was in God's uh, complete providence and grace and sovereignty that this would happen. Remember, which tribe, when, when we get to a list of the tribes, which tribe is missing? The tribe of Levi or Levi. The tribe of Levi or Levi is not mentioned because they're going to be in every tribe. They're going to be in every part of the land. Why? Because they're the ones who are to be the, 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 the spiritual leaders of uh, of Israel. So Joseph, who of course had the two sons in Egypt, Ephraim and Manasseh, they were actually given the birthright 
by Jacob back in Genesis 48. And you look at Genesis 48, verses 5 and 6. And it says, And now thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt before I came unto thee into Egypt, are mine. This is Jacob speaking. Yaakov, Israel. Remember Israel is his new name. But he says, Now thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt before I came unto thee into Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. And thy issue which thou begettest after them shall be thine and shall be called after the name of their brethren in their inheritance. It's interesting about Reuben because Reuben had, uh, uh, as, as the, uh, uh, the firstborn was supposed to have you know, that particular birthright, but he lost it because of something that he did uh, terribly, terribly wrong. And so he lost that. And, uh, but Jacob, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the leading of the Spirit, gave that uh, birthright to Ephraim and Manasseh. And although the people had lost their tribal identities after the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles, they will recover them in Messiah's kingdom. How, and people have asked me sometimes, well, how's that going to happen? I said, well, you know, think about this. God knows everybody's DNA. God knows everybody's DNA, especially everybody that's in his, in his tribe of, of Israel. <laughs> he knows everybody, you know, he, he knows every, everybody wears, he, he, knows, he knows where everybody is. If you're Jewish, he knows where you are. And so you don't have to worry about it. You, you know, you're, you're not going to have to go to Ancestry DNA to let them help you. They, they, you, don't have to, you don't need to have them help you. God will find you. So they're going to begin to know what tribe they're belonging to again. The distribution of the land will be based upon the original tribal names. And each tribe will receive the same, same amount of territory. We see there in verse 14. The same amount of territory. You shall inherit it one as well as another concerning the which I lifted up mine hand to give it unto your fathers and this land shall fall unto you for inheritance. As another, that's, that's what that phrase is. You shall inherit it one as well as another. Take note that God has sworn an oath that his people will inherit the promised land. God swore an oath. And if God swears an oath, you know it's going to come to pass. Because he never breaks his word, he never breaks his oath. So no physical or spiritual enemy is going to be able to stop God from giving his people this wonderful inheritance. Nobody's going to be able to. No matter how hard the enemy tries, he will not be able to keep Israel from receiving their inheritance. True believers now will receive their inheritance just as God promised in his covenant with Abraham. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make thee of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and I will make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing and I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So there is that particular promise that the true believer and remember that Abraham has become the father of all the faithful 
All those who truly believe Abraham is the father of the faithful, both Old Testament and New Testament. He says, and I'll make of thee a great nation. So the nation of Israel has been attacked from the very beginning because Israel is just an impediment in the plans of the enemy. Because God loves Israel so much. Genesis 15 verse 7 says, And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. He's talking to Abraham here. The Lord is speaking to Abraham. I'm the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees. One day Abraham was, was Abram or Abram, and he was, a, a, he was a, an idol worshiper. The next day, he's not. God changed him. And God says, you, he says, go, I, I, I've got a place for you. Abraham didn't ask, well, where am I going? You got a map? Is a bus coming by to pick me up? He says, no. He says, go. And God directed him and led him to the promised land. Abraham's faith, he says, you know, he just went out, didn't know where he was going, but he went. And God directed his steps. Is that not what the book of Proverbs teaches us all the time? That he directs our steps. Especially when we don't know where we're going. Have you ever been there? I have taken a lot of steps and realized I didn't know where I was going. Now, please, I can't be the only one in this room that has that problem. I'll get to a certain place, yeah, get to a certain place and like, this is not where I was going. Uh, now, sometimes the Lord is in that. And a lot of times uh, the Lord is saying, Why are you doing? What are you doing over there? <laughs> get over here. But there was Abraham because he trusted, he trusted the, the one true God that now is leading him to this promised land. Let's go down to verse 18 of Genesis 15. It says, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land. From the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. From the river Nile to the river Euphrates. That's a lot of land. The Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Kadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaim and the Amorites and the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. Those are all the ones that are over there right now, but that's, they're not the ones I want there. I want you there. All of those, all of those nations were, uh, and peoples were, 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 a, were a pagan people. And by the way, they were not just pagan. Just the mention of the Rephaim alone, one day, one day we'll talk about each of these, each of these tribes, but yeah, we're, we're talking about, you know, their, their idol worship was, was, was beyond just the worship of, of stone and wood. So just keep that in, in mind. God said, I want them out and I won't put you in that land. Genesis 17 verse 8, and I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. So these are all promises. These are all the promises that God has made with Abram that his people who would come forth from him that will bear the seed. What seed is that? The seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3, the seed that would eventually come through the line of, of uh, David, 
through the line of Judah to be the Messiah that is on the earth who is the Lord himself. So as we continue now, the Lord set the boundaries of the land. Now, one thing we need to understand about the Lord is that the Lord believes in boundaries. You know, this is a tremendous uh, debate in our country today, a debate between nationalism and globalism. Nationalism is all about, uh, you know, countries that uh, have their borders, have their own sovereignties and all, and there's this move of these particular globalists who say, no, listen, we don't need borders anymore. We, we, need, to, we need to put down all the borders and all the walls and all, the, uh, all of that. We just need to all become one society. And, uh, and uh, uh, you know, so the globalist and the nationalist. Well, guess what? The Lord wanted us to be nationalists. And you're thinking, really? Yes. Just, just go back to the book of Revelation, I mean, the book of Genesis and, and uh, the Tower of Babel. Because what were the people in Babel saying? Hey, let's all get together. We've got a common language. We've got a common language. We can be our own gods. And we can build our own way up to the heights and the heavens. The Tower of Babel itself was, was a... Uh, was a worshiping place. And, uh, and, and, and their, their whole idea in t you know, that Nimrod, the, you know, this was a demon-possessed man, what he, all he wanted was, was to defy God. And this was after the flood, remember, after the flood. And what happened? God came down and said what? Let's confound their languages. And he divided them. They could not understand themselves anymore. And they became nations. It was done for a reason. Don't forget that the main reason was one nation, Israel, his people. So this is one reason why globalism is not a, you know, the, 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 this is a, what's happening again. We're, we're getting back to what? The days of Noah to where everybody's now saying, listen, we need to have one kind of common language and everybody needs to kind of love each other and put the borders down. We shouldn't be doing this and that. <sighs> so, do you see where the argument is? That's a big struggle in our country today. We're trying to protect our, our nation, our national interests and, and, and our people and our, and, and uh, you know, we got so many people attacking, you know, those that say, listen, we need to protect our people. So this is the idea behind all of that, okay? So the Lord set the boundaries of the land. So if the, if the Lord does it, then there, there's a reason for it. Verses 15 through 20, Ezekiel 47. And this shall be the border of the land toward the north side from the great sea, which is, of course, the Mediterranean Sea, the way of Hethlon as men go to Zedad, Hamat, Berotat, Sibraim, which is between the border of Damascus and the border of Hamat, Hazar Hatikon, which is by the coast of Hauran, 
and the border from the sea shall be Hazeranan, the border of Damascus, and the north, northward and the border of Hamat. And this is the, the north side. So we're not going to go into the details of those names because they're actually different, and I'll tell you why in just a moment, than what uh, uh, in Moses' time. And the east side you shall measure from Haudan and from Damascus and from Gilead and from the land of Israel by Jordan from the border unto the east sea. And this is the east side. So there are certain distinctions that have remained in this particular topography and geography. Those are, would be Damascus to the east, uh, Gilead, and of course Israel by Jordan from the border unto the east. And this is the east side. And the south side, uh, southward from Tamar or Tamar, even to the waters of strife in Kadesh, the river to the great sea, the river that goes to the Mediterranean, and this is the south side southward. The west side also shall be the great sea from the border till a man come over against Hamat. This is the west side. So the boundaries of the new land will be a lot different from what they were when Assyria and Babylon had conquered Israel and Judah. But they will be close to those promised by God during the days of Moses. What I'd like for you to do is go to Numbers chapter 34. Numbers chapter 34. And I want to make a comparison and also notice, have you noticed that some of the names are going to be a little different than what we read. That doesn't mean that it's, that it's not uh, compatible here. But it says here in verse 1 of Numbers 34, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you come into the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall unto you for an inheritance, even the land of Canaan, with the coast thereof. Then your south quarter shall be from the wilderness of Zin, along by the coast of Edom, Edom to the east, and your south border shall be the utmost coast of the Salt Sea eastward. The Salt Sea, of course, being the Dead Sea. And your border shall turn from the south to the ascent of Akrabim and pass on to Zin. And the going forth thereof shall be from the south to Kadesh uh, Barnea and shall go on to Hazaradar. And there's a connection to the other Hazar that was mentioned in the other text. And pass on to Asmon. And the border shall fetch a compass from Osmon unto the river of Egypt, and the goings out of it shall be at the sea. So that's one particular area from the south. And then in verses 6 through 10 it says, And as for the western border, you shall even have the great sea for a border. So what is that? That's the Mediterranean Sea. That's still there today. Uh, and then it says, And this shall be your north border. From the great sea you shall point out from you Mount Hor. From Mount Hor you shall point out your border unto the entrance of Hamat, and the goings forth of the border shall be to Zedad. Those were mentioned, by the way, in the other text. And the border shall go on to Ziphron, and the goings out of it shall be Hazerenan, and this shall be your north border, and you shall point out your east border from Hazerenan to Shepham. So that's, that's another section. And then lastly, in verses 11 through 15, and the coast shall go down from Shepham to Riblah on the east side of Ain, 
and the border shall descend and shall reach unto the side of the Sea of Kinneret eastward. That would be the Galilee. Uh, and the border shall go down to Jordan and the goings out of it shall be at the Salt Sea. So that's a long distance from, from uh, Kinneret to all the way down to uh, the Salt Sea, which is the Dead Sea. Uh, this shall be your land with the coast thereof round about. And Moses commanded the children of Israel, saying, This is the land which you shall inherit by lot, which the Lord commanded to give unto the nine tribes and to the half tribe. From the tribe of the children of Reuben, according to the house of their fathers, and the tribe of the children of Gad, according to the house of their fathers, have received their inheritance, and half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance. The two tribes and the half tribe have received their inheritance on this side, Jordan, near Jericho, eastward toward the sun rising. And of course, that is the one uh, tribe that wanted to go and be on the other side of the Jordan. And they said, well, you just call us when you need us and whatnot. Okay, so that's what all that is about. So what the Lord was describing to Ezekiel, now going back to Ezekiel 47, were the borders using the names of places that existed in the prophet's day. That's why they're different because there were different names during the prophet Ezekiel's time from the time of Moses. That was a lot of years between Moses and Ezekiel. But now the level of detail suggests that this passage is to be taken literally and that these will be the actual borders of Israel. But then comes an additional guideline for distributing the land. Let's look at Ezekiel 47 verses 21 through 23, getting back to our text. So shall you divide this land unto you according to the tribes of Israel. And it shall come to pass that ye shall divide it by lot for an inheritance unto you. And to the strangers that sojourn among you, which shall beget children among you. And they shall be unto you as born in the country among the children of Israel. They shall have inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And it shall come to pass that in what tribe the stranger sojourneth, there shall you give him his inheritance, saith the Lord God. This is a very rich, rich passage about the believer that is not of the tribes of Israel, but is a believer nonetheless. And it's also rich because it lets us know that we don't have a separate God from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have the same God. And Israel, again, becomes the very center of all biblical prophecy because this prophecy extends far beyond the time of Ezekiel to the time that we are waiting for ourselves. And what is being prepared today is what is happening in Israel today. God is putting his people back in the land. Why? Because they have to be in the land for there to be an Israel for the Lord to finish what he's going to do with them. The seven years of tribulation are all about Israel. They're not about the church. Let's get that out of your brains. It's not about the church. It's about Israel. Daniel teaches us. Daniel chapter 9 teaches us that Israel still has seven years of their, uh, their discipline to go. They're short seven years. And God is always going to be faithful to complete what he begins. So to think that, you know, all of a sudden everything is not about Israel anymore, 
You know that more than half of the, what is called the, the, the church today thinks this way? That Israel has no, uh, no right to have anybody think that they're, they're a part of biblical prophecy today. And they don't even believe in prophecy. They, they don't, they don't want to believe in prophecy. This is the reason why there are so many groups today like, like uh, uh, replacement theology people who say the church has replaced Israel for all of the, the great uh, 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 blessings. Yeah, well, what about the curses? Because Israel got curses too. You want to give the curses? You don't want the curses? You're, if you're going to take the blessings of Israel and say we, you know, we're, we're replacing Israel, then you've got to take the curses too. They don't want to do that. That's, that's not part of their theology. Do y'all understand what I'm saying? This is the kind of this is the kind of of, uh, of of views that people in the church have today. There's another view. The other view has to do with with um, uh, preterism. It's called preterism, uh, which means that all prophecy has already been fulfilled, all of it. There's no prophecy that needs to be fulfilled anymore. It's all been done. Therefore, Israel, whatever is in the land today, is not real Israel. You know, they may be Jews, but they're not real Israel. God doesn't care for them. He's already rejected them. Well, God is the one who says that he has had to treat them as those being rejected, but where does he not say? Where does he not say that he's going to redeem them, where he's going to restore them? Well, it it does say that. It says it all throughout the Old Testament. It even says it in the New Testament. Remember what Paul said in chapters 9 through 11 of the book of Romans. Israel will be saved. And he also says all Israel will be saved. It is God's desire that Israel would be once again where they're supposed to be. This is what people are missing because they don't want to believe that God is a supernatural God. Think about it. They don't want to believe that God can come and snatch away the true believer and take them out before the seven years of tribulation begins. A great tribulation that's going to happen, the darkest time of of all of the earth. And this is the reason why I said something to consider that at the very end of that seven-year period, when all the nations gather against the Christ it's a done deal because the scripture already tells us that it will be Christ who who judges the nations and wins the battle we have to believe in the God of Israel we have to believe in the Israel that God loves And so listen again to what is said in this passage. It shall come to pass, verse 22, it shall come to pass that you shall divide it by lot for an inheritance unto you and to the strangers that sojourn among you, which shall beget children among you. And they shall be unto you as born in the country among the children of Israel. They shall have inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And it shall come to pass that in what tribe the stranger sojourneth there shall you give him his inheritance, saith the Lord God. In other words, not only will the land be distributed equally among the families of each tribe, but Gentile foreigners living among the Jews will also receive a portion of land. In the land. 
Of course, no strangers or foreigners will be living among the Jews unless they have become true believers. And that's really the key here, isn't it? That's really the key. That'll be true believers. These foreigners are treated the same as native-born Israelites and allowed to raise their families within the nation of Israel. This is one of the joys and one of the glories of, of the millennial kingdom. Consider, though, that this goes all the way back to Moses again. This is why God does, you know, this isn't like God's, you know, just, just making these things up as he goes. He already said this, Leviticus 19, verse 34. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you. That sounds familiar. We just said something like that in Ezekiel. The stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself. Do you know that that particular commandment was given by the Lord to the Jewish people that he was being confronted by? What is the great commandment? The greatest commandment, of course, is what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What were they not doing? Loving their neighbor. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Hey, you should be loving those strangers because you were a stranger once. And I loved you. Loved you enough to take you out of there. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 24, verse 22. You shall have one manner of law. Folks, how many manners of law are there today? Well, I mean, how many countries are there? Even the countries closest to us, the two that border us, have totally different kinds of laws than we do. But then you have little groups of, of Muslims all across the country, and all they are shouting is, well, we only follow Sharia law. And they have messed up countries in Europe completely because now some of those countries are saying, well, we're going to honor Sharia law. But the Bible says there's only one manner of law. You shall have one manner of law as well, as, as well for the stranger as for one of your own country. You treat them the same way. For I am the Lord your God. Remember what I'm telling you because I'm the Lord. Numbers 15 verse 29. You shall have one law for him that sinneth through ignorance, both for him that is born among the children of Israel and for the stranger that sojourneth among them. You don't treat the, the, the stranger differently. We shouldn't treat the stranger differently here. But we oftentimes do. Treat him differently. A vehicle from the other side of the border comes over here, does terrible things, and a lot of times they do drive terribly over here if you understand what I mean. And, and sometimes they're, you know, because of, of the international situation, sometimes they're just kind of let go. But you commit something over there, oh, you're in a lot of trouble. Do you, you understand? It's not the same. It's just not the same. So foreigners and their families will receive an inheritance within the borders of the tribe that they are going to settle among. And so, from north to south, from north to south, the tribes will be this. And you see it on your, on your sheet. Dan, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim, Reuben, and Judah. Now next, the land is assigned to the Lord. 
the prince and the city. And then it's followed by the tribes. The closest one to the Jerusalem area is the tribes of Benjamin. I remember Judah, of course, is, is part of the, the southern kingdom that's down there close to the uh, temple. Uh, then comes Benjamin, Simeon, Issachar, Issachar uh, Zebulun, and Gad. It appears that all the tribes will have access to the Mediterranean Sea. And you can't see this on that little map, but, but trust me that uh, Zebulun and Gad do not have access to the Mediterranean Sea. They would have to go through Issachar. And Issachar only has this little bit of, of land that they, they uh, touch the Mediterranean for whatever that's worth for now. And then the royal tribe of Judah. The royal tribe of Judah, as I mentioned, will be located adjacent to the temple area from which Jesus will reign. The tribes that were descended from sons born to Jacob's wives, uh, Jacob's wives' maids, the maids of Jacob's wives, Zilpah and Bilhah, those would be Dan, Asher, Naphtali, and Gad. Notice where they are. They are located the farthest to the north and to the south. Interesting. Now, we aren't told how much land each tribe will be given, but only where they will be located. Now, land was given to the, um, to the tribes earlier by number. You know, the ones who had the greatest number of people also got more land, of course, because they needed more land for the people they had. And that's probably how it will be as well. But then again, think about this. The geography is different. The topography is different. More people will be able to live in, in, in every segment of that land, and especially those who are the, the quote-unquote foreigners or the, or the strangers, which they're not strangers anymore. As long as they're believers, they're not strangers. So what we do know is that there will be peace among the tribes as they submit to the kingship of their Messiah, Lord Jesus Christ. There will be peace. He will be the Prince of Peace. He will be the prince above all princes because there is another prince that we've already talked about. So let's keep in mind then that which God promised Abraham back when his nephew Lot separated from him. This, this is kind of an important little, little thing. Let's go to Genesis 13, verses 14 through 17. Genesis 13, 14 through 17. Something to keep in mind. And remember now, <laughs> Abraham and Lot and you know his shepherds, their, their shepherds were fighting with each other, and you know for you know for uh, you know their sheep to eat. Uh, you know, there's just a big mess going on there. You know, Lot was was Abraham's nephew, and uh, so anyway, Abraham said, "Which way do you want to go?" And Lot looked to the east and he saw the green. And he said, I'm going to go that way. He said, okay. Abraham went the other way because that's where God wanted him to go anyway. So you all understand that part? You understand that when he made that decision to go to the east because of what he saw, he ended up in Sodom. And we know what happened then. So in verse 14 it says, And the Lord said unto Abram, After that Lot was separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art northward and southward 
and eastward and westward. He's telling him, look in every direction for all the land which thou seest. To thee will I give it. To the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. That's a long time. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth. So that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise. Walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it. For I will give it unto thee. Wow. Lot looked at uh, the green. He looked at how rich, how fruitful everything looked. And yet we know what happened. The deception of of riches, the deception of the enemy, the deception of, of you know, prospering on the earth as it, is, as, as it were. And Abraham, who was satisfied to go west toward the land of Canaan, which was mostly desert and barren, and God says, look, not just that way. Look north. Look south. Now look east and look west. All of that is what I've promised to you. And uh, along with what we read earlier from Genesis 15, this promise, this particular promise has never been rescinded, it's never been withdrawn, it's never been canceled, and it's never been annulled. The promise remains. And who made the promise? God did. Does God ever make a promise that he doesn't keep? No, he keeps every promise he makes. And so the borders that we see here will be similar to those promised to Israel during the time of Moses, as we read in Numbers 34. But what we need to remember is that it is the Lord's land. It is the Lord's land. It is the Lord's holy mountain. It is the Lord's holy city. It is the Lord's holy place. It all belongs to him. And he will divide it as he sees fit. He won't have to go to the United Nations to get approval. That piece of property will be gone for a long time before this. The land is his land. You know how Woody, old Woody Guthrie used to sing, this land is your land, this land is my land. Well, maybe this land is, but not that land. That land is his land. That land is God's land. And the Israelites had, already, had always known that. And his people have always known that. I want to leave you with Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 8. I want us to tie this kind of together with what we said about the stranger and how the stranger is to be seen in the eyes of God and how the stranger who 
is in fact a Gentile or, 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 or is Gentile in contrast to the Jewish nation yet nonetheless has to live together and can live together because God has, has demanded it. It says, Neither let the son of the stranger that has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord. What's the key here? Joining themselves to the Lord. What was earlier? that have joined themselves to the Lord. Verse 3. So get back over here where we were. Also the son of the stranger that joined themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. You know, that's a tremendous contrast to what we sometimes see happening in, in, in houses of prayer today, which is not a bad thing. I mean, you know, when we pray nowadays because of the condition that the world is in and because of, you know, so much sin and, and so many people suffering through all kinds of things, you know, our prayers are deep. Our prayers are, are at times even as painful as, as, as just knowing that people are going through troubled times. But we're talking about a time after all of that that there will be joy in the house of prayer. And it won't be just those who are of Israel that will enjoy the blessing of the joy. It will be all who join themselves to the God of Israel. You see the importance of Israel now and the God of Israel? So then he goes on and says this. And this is, of course, where Jesus got all of what he said uh, at this time, even then will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. A house of prayer for all people. Jews and Gentiles. The Lord God which gathereth the outcasts of Israel saith, Yet will I gather others to him beside those that are gathered unto him. So, what a joy it is to know how the Lord has prepared a way for all of us to be a part of his holy mountain, of his holy city, of his holy people, of his temple. And one thing that, uh, okay, so I'm going to give you another little hint about that study after Ezekiel. But um, the hint is, what is the hint? <laughs> no, I, I know what it is. And, and, and well, it just, has to, it, it just has to be, it just has to do, 
I did forget. I forgot. It'll come to me probably while we're praying. When we get it, I'll get it back out there. All right. So, anyway. It's coming. It's coming. (laughs) 